0: Hey, it's Ari again. Thanks for listening for a long time, or if you've just come to the podcast, I appreciate you being here. With the 500th and final episode coming up, I thought it might be cool to go back to some fan favorites. I always think it's important to understand where you've come from in order to figure out where you want to get to. So this episode and a few of the following are some of the favorite episodes as chosen by listeners of the podcast, members of the Replaceable Founder Facebook group, which you can join for free by going to less.do slash Facebook. And what I'd love for you to do. I don't want you to leave a review on iTunes. I don't want you to go buy something from my website. Listen to the episode and then head over to www.voxwithari.com. And get in touch and just let me know what you think, what you thought of it, any new ideas that you got from the podcast, whatever your biggest productivity challenges are because that's the kind of material that I love. And it fuels some of my best and most innovative ideas. Please enjoy the episode.
1: Hey, it's Ari Meisel. Welcome to the Less Doing, More Living podcast. Nine years ago, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, a little known, extremely painful and seemingly incurable disease, which forced me to go down a long road of radical transformation so that I could reduce stress and win back a normal life for me and my family. While extremely painful, Crohn's was the best thing that ever happened to me because it forced me to innovate and create the Less Doing More Living system, which I used to govern my life. Then I was given the gift of starting to teach this system to other people, and over time I was able to help more and more people through a video course, this podcast, and the Less Doing More Living book. Now I have the privilege of working with some of the world's top business minds, including Dean Jackson, Joe Polish, Dave Asprey, and Jordan Harbinger, who have all decided to join me for the first annual Less Doing Live Summit that I'm holding in New York City from May 1st through 3rd. To get more information on the Less Doing Live Summit, you can go to the URL, lessdoinglive.com, or you can also find links to the event on our main site, lessdoing.com. Now enjoy today's podcast, and if you listen to the end of the show, I am going to give you more information on this event, as well as a way you can earn a free copy of my book, Less Doing, More Living.
2: Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 133 with Neil Strauss. I was really excited about this interview because Neil is my favorite author of my favorite book, which is called Emergency. And I literally have been trying to coordinate this interview with Neil since last May, and it's... It finally happened, and it was really good. So I'm very excited with this. And uh, good morning, Felix. How are you? Hey, good. How are you doing? Great, great. So uh, let's get into the links because the, the interview with Neil is pretty long. So we'll we'll uh, start with the links now. Cool. The the first one, this is kind of amazing to me, but it's called Get Composed. And it's something, I, I swear to God, I, I have this in my Evernote. I had this idea maybe 2 years ago. I actually talked to Dan Martell about it at Clarity because I thought this could be something Clarity would do. Yeah. Now, so basically what it is is you get paid to read your email and and that's actually not a very good tagline for what it's offering. What they what it is is that if if somebody wants to send you an email and they want you to read it, they have to pay for you to do that. Now, on the one hand, what I think that they want to use this for is to just limit access to you, which I think is kind of uh like pompous in a way that somebody in general if you're saying oh someone should pay to send you an email. However, on the other side of this, if you look at like the clarity model where somebody's paying per minute to speak to an expert, that's where this to me makes sense. So you could say like oh obviously my friends and you know colleagues and stuff and clients can email me, but if somebody is just asking a random question that's like coaching related, then I could see it where it's like okay, you know, you could talk to Ari on the phone for, you know, whatever price per hour. Or you know you can pay twenty bucks to send them an email with it one question and get an it answered
3: it's it's um yeah exactly it's it's obviously not for your personal friends well i think um, i think
2: that that's actually how they're marketing it which right. is which i think is a mistake but yeah
3: oh really i think it's um i mean in a way it's a sort of spam filter of sorts yeah um, so that that could be one way you're looking at it but um but it's also, I think it's, it, there's going to be a certain person out there who, um, who is highly in demand that uh, could benefit from, from this kind of thing or is looking for this kind of filter, basically.
2: Right, absolutely. And obviously you can set that payment at whatever you want, but yeah. it'd, be, it'd be really interesting because I've always found that it's an interesting like, psychological thing where if you put up even the most minute barrier, some, it'll, it'll filter out a lot of people.
3: Mm.
2: Uh, I was listening to the Radiolab podcast, and they were talking about Facebook and how have you ever have you ever reported an image on Facebook that like you didn't like or no, that you I thought, haven't actually no okay. okay so so I've done it I think maybe two or three times and there were always either somebody put something really like pornographic on my timeline by accident okay or something very political so there were like three times when I've reported something uh, like that okay. and. Then I realized that you could just block things in your timeline. But <clears throat> this was a really interesting article that so when they introduced that feature, basically they introduced it like right before Christmas. And I think this was last year. Mm-hmm. And all the engineers went home for the night, basically. They came back the day after Christmas and they had one million image reports that had come in. Oh, really? And the problem with image verification stuff like that is that you have to you have to do it, a human has to do it.
3: Right, right. There's just Basically. you have, yeah.
2: yeah. So you have to have a human that is identifying whether or not it's it's an acceptable image. But what they were finding was that a lot of people were were reporting images that they just didn't like. Yeah. You know, so right, right. So they so they changed the reporting system, and so this is why I asked if you've done this. So like, if you now report an image, it'll say why, and you have choices, and it's like the 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 imagery is graphic or uh, offensive in nature or i just don't like the like so you can still choose that you just don't like it mm, yeah or or it's embarrassing that's another one yeah and it's funny because if you say you just don't like it what mm-hmm. it does is it pops up with an, a message to the person who posted it and then you're then basically it's prompting you to send a message to your friend and ask them to take it down
3: oh well, that's a clever idea yeah and what
2: they find is like 60% of the time that makes people not do it
3: yeah sure just just enough having that um, just that process to make it more than just one click will eliminate a lot of um, a lot of craft, basically.
2: Exactly. So this is, you know, this is
3: one of those things. I mean, you know, even if you made it like
2: 50 cents to send you an email, you know, maybe that won't stop someone from emailing you, but maybe it'll stop them from sending that endless, like, you know, okay, thanks, great, talk to you soon, you know, like going
3: on and on. Yeah. Conversely, I find that with the uh, the Touch ID sensor on the iPhone, and now that it's so much easier to buy apps because you can just use your fingerprint to to authenticate the app store as opposed to having to type in your password, it makes it a lot easier. And it's, it's almost the same thing in reverse. you know?
2: Right, exactly. Um, yeah.
3: Anyway. So,
2: okay, well, that's, that was the first one. The second one is... This is, this is a funny one. So, you know, I, I don't have a particular... Th- Thinking process behind this is just that if something will make a process easier in someone's life, then I want to talk about it. Mm. So th- there is a company called Wevorce, yeah. yeah, and they make they make divorce easier.
3: <laughs> well, that's so that's got to be anything that makes divorce easier. I imagine would be hugely appealing. To I was wondering how it works. Does it? Is this something that both couples sign up for? Or, um... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So basically, I, I don't think this is
2: counseling per se. Actually, there's this is a legal service, mm-hmm. uh, but they're divorce professionals, which, by the way, sounds like the most depressing job ever. <laughs> and um, <laughs> but they basically it it's in office or online, and they basically help people get through the process of divorce in a way that makes it, <coughs> I guess, less uh, damaging to their relationship as well as the the relationship. Uh, with their with their children yeah, so they right. help with building foundation parenting planning financial mapping document preparation and review of everything so you know hey if if, that, if you're at that no, point that's in your a, life
3: great. I mean this it's is, needed I mean it's obviously yeah, needed this right is a very, yeah exactly it's um, an admirable service you know
2: yeah great. I'm I'd, glad that kind of thing exists yeah so and, and the testimonials were really great it seems like it's it's the right thing so Hmm. There you go. So if you're if you're in the market for divorce professional, check out Wevorce. Yeah, right. Now there is a service called Nudge, and the from the best I can tell from playing around with this, it's the the fo- the Twitter equivalent of followup.cc. CC. Uh, okay. So so yeah, basically you can schedule follow ups on yeah. conversations that you have on Twitter, which is which I think is really good actually because I, I haven't had many conversations on Twitter. I usually you know somebody says something or is send me a link and I check it out and that's it. There's not a lot of back and forth, but mm-hmm. if there is, it's really hard to like, like Twitter just you know it can get lost. There's so much information, so yeah. this this basically helps you with scheduling follow ups within with Twitter conversations. So,
3: oh wow, it's
2: great nudge that is very cool yeah so then the next one this was great there was an article in the atlantic called the selling of the avocado
3: yes what what, I, i didn't get to read this one can you um can you explain this
2: it's basically about how avocados have become so popular over the last few years and i i actually there's a bunch of stuff in here i didn't even know about but as you know very well i love 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 avocados which apparently were, were originally called alligator pears.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes sense, yeah, with the skin and everything.
2: Well, you, you know, by the way, there's, a, there's like a lot of those renaming of food things, for instance, the, um, the uh, Chilean, Chilean sea bass. You know what the real name for Chilean sea bass is? What? Patagonian toothfish. Oh, gosh. So apparently... Chilean sea bass had a much nicer roll off the tongue. No, it certainly does. Yeah. Yes. What, so, what's uh, the
3: name? What's the name for this? It's like um, oh, it's like a marketing term to rename something. Yeah, I know what you're so talking about, but I, more, I can't think
2: of the name. Yeah. Anyway, but so one of the things that it was showing was like avocado consumption, uh, in the U.S. and in where is this in California? Oh, sorry, it, it was something like uh, 0.5 pounds per person per year was mm-hmm. how many avocados people were having in uh in 1980. And yeah. now now it's it's like four pounds per person per year. Oh, really? Wow. Which if you think about, I mean that, that, that may not sound like a lot, but four pounds of avocado is actually quite a bit. <laughs> uh and I, I probably have that much avocado. I think I have about an avocado every day. But it's it's just a really cool article sort of about how the history of how the avocado became really really popular and, and well marketed
3: and basically right
2: well uh, yeah and but they also had to overcome the the avocado growers which was a, apparently california i guess that's a big producer of avocados they had mm-hmm. to over, overcome the anti-fat movement in a big way and that was
3: one of the reasons that they didn't become yes. so popular until more recently ah with high fat being not perceived as not such Demonized, a thing yeah. after all yeah
2: Yeah, so it's just it's just a good article. I love The Atlantic, and uh, you know, guacamole is probably a big driving force behind it becoming so popular. Everybody loves guacamole, and it's it's great. So anyway, avocados are wonderful. It's a good story if you want to know the history there. Yeah, there was a really cool study done about walking. So if you look at a lot, like we had Mason Curry on the show once, who wrote the book Daily. Rituals, which was 172 rituals, daily rituals of various creative people throughout history, oh, yeah. and and one of the things that you find is really common is extremely long walks. You know, so like Gustav Mahler apparently would take, who was a composer. For those who don't know, <laughs> would would take. I didn't I didn't know that before. I you know. Oh met well, now.
3: yeah, yeah. I shouldn't be smoking. <laughs> Yes, you, you composing, well, you composing types. Yeah, don't so, worry. Just name any author; I'm sure I won't have heard of it. That's <laughs> okay for all those who don't know who Mahler is. Yeah.
2: Well, so maybe you could shed some light on this because you you probably know a little bit more about Mahler than me. But apparently, he would take like four hour walks that he would drag his wife along with, and oh, then yeah. he and then he would compose. And and apparently, she hated it.
3: <laughs> oh, really?
2: Yeah. Wow. Uh, but well, that's wh- impressive. Well, no, that's this what I w- need to tell
3: Claire, who absolutely hates going outside especially in this cold weather but oh well she hates going outside in the cold weather you know And i can't really right. blame her for that um but yeah and yeah, that's um yeah he was he was absolutely terrified of um he was con- he was sort of superstitious marla was that that no, basically no composer had ever before him had ever composed <laughs> 10 symphonies and and so he was convinced, you know, like Beethoven died at his ninth, you know, and everything. and Really? people before him. So, yeah, so he was rather superstitious in a way. that um, So he didn't want to call, like, his tenth, his ninth symphony or his tenth symphony. I mean, my, my knowledge of it is a little fuzzy, I confess. But, um, but yeah, so he like, didn't want to call it his ninth or his tenth, I forget which, because he was worried that he was going to, you know, fate would take its rip upon him um after it so i think that's he, like, renamed really funny it something else yeah Huh. okay yeah i've got lots of composer stories I had a great music history teacher and he had so many stories about all these composers which were hilarious yeah anyway like strauss strauss's wife the younger strauss um johann strauss his wife was was a real um was always like beating him down and he would uh she would she was. Uh, she would tell him that the only way she could get her measurements in her house was in sort of using him as the measurement. So so, what? Like, so when she had her carpets measured for her room, she said she would have to. She would like measure him lying across the floor and then take him to the carpet shop and the and um, and she would have the carpet man, you know, measure like you know four and a half strausses. Be the be the the length of the room anyway that's one of my favorites that's amazing yeah yeah she was like a real whatever the the opposite of she was like a real battle axe basically (laughs) yeah anyway complete digression sorry no i love that back to less
2: doing yeah Uh, okay so well the thing about this article so what they did with the study was they wanted to see if it if walking actually does have an effect on creativity and this was what was this was so cool so the, the theory when they did this was that the reason walking increases creativity is because you're uh, like experiencing new things. Like you're, you're seeing new scenery, you're, you're passing people, you're hearing sounds oh. like and it's opening your eyes. What they found was that actually that was not the case. It was the physical act of walking. So what they did was they put a bunch of college students on treadmills in uh, like a gray room with no stimulus at all. Like your basement. Yeah. And exactly. And they actually saw a huge improvement in creativity.
3: Oh really? Yeah. Wow. So
2: it's literally the act of
3: walking that causes that physiological difference. Wow. Well I better get that walking desk set up right now. Well, yeah. I mean Can You imagine Can you imagine I'd just be like an unbridled, you know, stream of creativity pouring out of me and producing so much music. It, well, yeah, sure. I mean, and one,
2: one theory they had was that it was that, that walking may improve your mood just because it's, you know, you're you're moving and you're getting blood flow. But it's pretty amazing. And obviously they're going to have to study amazing, this, yeah. this some more, but it doesn't matter what setting you're in, just take a walk and you might become more creative.
3: Treadmill or real walk, is that what you mean? Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. Wow.
3: Well, that'd be cool. Maybe you should set up a treadmill in the basement with the uh, and then we can watch movies and um and walk and um more productive and creative yeah that could be in all seriousness yeah i don't know i agree yeah um
2: okay so then the uh, the next one is an article from factor 75 so so factor 75 is a company started by ryan rouse who's going to be on not the next episode but the one after that and ryan was a member of the uh, the less doing mastermind and his food is amazing. So I he basically does meal delivery and it's really, really good food. And actually I gotta get a couple of these for you to try, Felix. they it's oh, the yeah. first meal well, it's the first meal delivery company I've ever seen where the meal is actually really filling and amazing and awesome. Oh, okay. And everything. yeah, and just some great stuff. But he posted an article on his blog called The Sugar Breakdown, What's So Bad About Sugar Anyway. And one of the, He breaks it down in a really simple way, but one of the things was is he says you eat sugar, you like it, you crave it, and then the next part is that blood sugar level spike. So dopamine is released in the brain, which equals addiction. And, but then you get this big insulin secretion that helps drop those blood sugar levels back down to try to normalize it. And since the blood level sugars, blood sugar levels are falling so rapidly, the high insulin levels cause immediate fat storage. And then the body is looking for that lost sugar hive. So then you have hunger and cravings for sugar again. And then the cycle basically repeats.
3: Okay. Yeah.
2: So sugar is definitely, there's not, the point is that sugar is addictive. There's really no question oh, there. I see. Yeah. And can cause real like pharmaceutical level addiction. And it's it's very hard to break. But really? if you, you okay. try to understand these effects, it might help. Wow. Yeah. Um, so then, anyway, it also talks about fructose, sucrose, glucose, and the various forms. It, it's, it's just a—it's a good article that that really just puts it together in a, in a nice way. So check that out. And and if you are up for it, you should definitely check out the Factor Seventy Five food because it is—we're very close to that being the official food of left stewing because I love it so much. So the last one. The, I want wait, to tell what you. is that? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Factor Seventy Five. Factor Seventy Five. Yeah. Oh. So good. <laughs> So okay so the last one I want to tell you about is there's an article in the Mute, in on themuse.com and it was called uh, eight questions successful people ask themselves that you should too. And I I think I actually might go through all of these really quick. So the first one was yeah, what is good. What time do you wake up? Right? So ap- apparently in general very successful people tend to wake up earlier than the rest of the rest of the population I guess is one way to put it. And uh, 6 a.m. seems to be that mark. So a lot of these people get up before six. Some people get up before four, which I think is pushing it. But it's one thing. So if see when you're waking up. You know, yeah. I've i I've, I've definitely heard people say to me several times like, "Oh, I get you know, I got up really early today." And it's like, "Well, what time did you get up?" Oh, it was like nine o'clock.
3: <laughs> and to me, I, I, you've heard people say that, right? I mean, I, I have not, but but I believe it. I believe it very much because yeah. My first yeah. thought thought is like, do any of these people have young children? The um, the very successful people who get up early. I mean, I must, they they must do so. Yeah. They must, right? But
2: um, yeah. that you know, and that's something I don't always relate to as well, or, uh, either is. Uh, let me see how to put this. So you, you and I are very involved fathers, right? Mm-hmm. I would say. I think that's yeah. that's a good, pretty much th- fair like enough much to say.
3: More, we we're very lucky to be able to be involved, and I don't think it yeah enough said (laughs) right no so we're very involved so yeah
2: but and that's not to say that a father who is less involved is not as a good father it's just you and I are very physically involved with the kids so but I I definitely know that there's people with kids who like they get up they go work out they go to like and and there's Mm. not they're not like I am very much part of the morning process with the kids, with my wife, as yeah, are you. Yeah, that's so, that's
3: what we're trying to say.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that I think that's actually a better way to put it. So it's it's just mm-hmm. hard it's hard to understand sometimes how somebody's like, Oh yeah, I got up and I and I journaled and I meditated and I did all this. And it, it, it it's hard for me to to picture doing that myself unless I were to get up much, much earlier than I do. So Mm. I don't know, different strokes for different folks. Yeah. But anyway, so what time do you wake up? That's the first one. The second one is what decisions can you stop making? And this is pure less doing, obviously, right?
3: You yeah. want to make you, you want to automate as much it's in your life so that you can actually. make less yeah.
2: decisions. Now, and the, by the way, this is not like what are you doing well, that you shouldn't I, I, be doing. I
3: thought it was I thought it was interesting was um, I don't know if you're expanding on this, but the, I didn't realize that Mark Zuckerberg wears the same gray T-shirt every morning. I mean, obviously not the same gray T-shirt, but. The, he wears um, same color T-shirt, or I guess he has like a stack of ten of them, and he takes a fresh one each day, um, so that he doesn't have to make a decision about what to wear. I think that's kind of clever. That seems to be a fairly yeah. common one, by the way. There was I had Hi, a, a, a physics
2: teacher in high school. Uh, mm-hmm. I forget his name now, and he always wore black jeans, a red T-shirt, and a black button-down shirt over it every day. And he said that he's like, I, I just I don't want to waste neurons. <laughs> <he's> <laughs> And I think Obama. Well, is like no that, one by wants way, too, to. Be, right?
3: No one really wants to be that guy, though, either. But um, right. Well, that's that's exactly him. the same clothes, but still. So. Well, but I think Obama also has like a value two suits. Yeah. Oh really?
2: So I think so. It's like a gray suit and a black or something. It's like the only two. But uh, that, yeah, and that is one example. But any decision that you can avoid making is going to be helpful yeah. in terms of uh, preserving your willpower.
3: Honestly. Yeah. Well, it's it's what um it's what um who do you interview in the last the last episode that just went up? Um, Dennis Mort Dennis Mortenson. Oh, oh, you mean Peter Sage? Peter Sage, Jay yeah, was saying, you know, anything you can automate, do it, which is um essentially the same essentially similar concept basically. Right. I mean, in a in a sense you're automating your decision-making process there. Yeah, right. By, yeah. Um so actually I'm I'm going to
2: skip a couple here. Uh there is uh, what hard what hard thing are you not doing enough of? Mm. And this, I think, is an important one too. And I think the 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 probably a very common one that'll come up for people is working out. Mm. A lot of people will say that oh it's it's too hard to work out right now. Like I don't have the time. I don't. Have, I can't make the time. But exercise is such a keystone habit and so important. And you have to look at it as sort of an investment yourself. And you know we've talked on it before about the 12 minute athlete, and I was playing around with one last night, which we'll talk about in another episode, but I'll just mention it here, called Fit Star. That I did a five minute workout yesterday, that I thought was actually pretty good, and oh, yeah. It, it, yeah, and it's really important. And I, actually, I even I was listening to the Tim Ferriss podcast, and he was interviewing Matt Mullenweg, who is the guy who created WordPress, and he said that for like a month he basically did one push up a day. That was his workout, and he said it was important possible for me not to do it because if I, I couldn't do one push-up. That was ridiculous. He said, I, before I got in the shower or before I left the house, I'd do one push-up. And from there he you know built up from that. So, uh, yeah. what hard thing are you not doing enough of? You need to challenge yourself in some way to do the things that are difficult. And then, the last one, one that was on here was...
3: Days, right? Good.
2: Yeah, exactly. And then, do you really need to buy that? <laughs> so... Yeah true this is something that i I, i've gotten much better at but i used to be really bad about this especially with like one click purchasing on amazon it's very it's very easy to avoid making an actual informed decision about whether or not you want something and and in in addition to that i've always had this sort of addiction to infomercial products as i've talked about before (laughs) and you you don't need anything that is sold on infomercial i'm gonna tell you that right now you might want it And you might enjoy it, and that's fine, but you definitely don't need it. (laughs) It's kind of like by design, that's the way it works. So do you really need to buy that? You know, you could just take one second and sort of think about how are you actually going to use it? Is that the best use of it? And even if that stops you from buying one thing that you don't need, then that's a good improvement. So there you go. That's all I've got for today. We got a long interview with Neil Strauss, which I was so happy to have. And it was a really, really great interview. We got into some stuff about me. He started, he turned it on me at one point. He's a very good interviewer, honestly. And I
3: know you're all going to like this. So enjoy. And uh, thanks a lot, Felix. Well, my pleasure. I can't wait to listen to the interview myself, actually.
4: And now for feature Interview.
5: So now I'm speaking with Neil Strauss, who is my, he's the author of my favorite, favorite book, which is Emergency as well as The Game. And he's had more life experiences in, in a short amount of time than a lot of people that uh, you might hear about or read about. So, Neil, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me.
4: That's cool. Thanks for having me on, Ari.
5: So. First of all, I want to tell, if if people haven't read Emergency, can you t- just sort of give a little summary of, of, like, what led to it, you know, the story behind it, and, 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 you know, what made you decide to write the books?
4: Sure, yeah, I think that my generation, I don't know how the years go for generations, but I'll just say for Generation X or what have you, we were born or we were kind of came of age in a fascinating time in the world, which is that, Every generation had this great disaster, and whether it was World War One, the Great Depression, uh, you know, World War Two, the Cold Vietnam, the Cold War, every, everybody had something that just messed that they lived in fear of in their generation. There was a big struggle or crisis for their generation. Yet, in our generation or my generation, the. The Soviet Union split apart, there was no longer a Cold War, America was a lone superpower, and there was a sort of year of... and, and the internet boom was happening, the Wall Street boom, the 80s, and it was all great. And and all of a sudden, when this millennia started, millennium started, that all changed. And the st- things that led to the world we're living in now happened, and I think I went through a generational panic attack, which is I realized that, oh, you know what? No, people do want to kill Americans just for being Americans. Uh, war and terrorist attacks can happen in America. And also, if we look at something when we know something's going to happen, such as when there are disasters that we can predict coming, yet our government still can't take care of us or prevent it from happening, I realize, like, hey, Maybe I need to take my life into my own hands and not just depend on the system. The system is a fragile thing. And the more I researched it, the more I realized that even the government says you can't depend on us. So, so it sent me off in this wild exploration of, of finding every way I could to be self-sufficient, uh, to get off the grid, to not be reliant on a system that was unreliable. Does that explain it? Does that explain it? It's
5: that, been a while. That, so. that, that wonderfully explains it, yes. Yeah. So one of the things that, that was amazing to me when I read the book is, so, well, okay, so a little backstory to this too for me is that anybody listening to the podcast knows about this aspect about me, but that basically I had to overcome Crohn's disease and it, it was a, a very rough journey. And a lot of that was just feeling weak and feeling kind of helpless and then deciding that I needed to do something about that. It, and one of the best ways to do that, one of the most empowering ways to do that, was to sort of arm myself with skills, as it were. So, reading your book, it was almost like a checklist of things that I want that I then decided to do. And just so you know, I mean, w- before I read the book, I, I had a pile of lessons already. But after I read the book, I am now a, a yellow belt in Krav Maga. I am an EMT. Um, I, I learned several uh, survival techniques. I haven't done the urban survival one yet, which is something I really well, wanted gotta to do. You got to but... do
4: that. You got to do that. I just, I was just, I'm going to tell you a fascinating story when you're done. But keep, keep going. I'll tell you a fascinating story about the guy because I just saw him, the urban survivalist guy. Uh, but yeah, it's awesome. I love being an EMT. Isn't it an EMT? It's, a, it's a great way to get this incredible amount of medical knowledge in as quick as a, as a month. And you really, you really have the working knowledge of. It, it, I can't tell you how. Useful. That's been when people injure themselves on the roadside. If it's either while they're waiting for an ambulance or something, I literally can pull over and help them.
5: It's it's incredible, you know. And, and part of my impetus for doing that was that I wanted to have more knowledge of my bio, my own biology relating to my Crohn's And of course, you know, an, an EMT is not going to treat somebody with a chronic disease that wasn't. I wasn't delusional, but it did give me a lot better understanding of things. And, yeah, it's true. If it, 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 You have that ability to stop and help somebody. It also, is, I have three young boys, and I think that there's several things that have happened in the past three years that would freak out most people, but I was sort of able to, to either handle it or just sort of calmly realize that it wasn't life-threatening and that things would be okay. Um, but i I've been close to delivering a baby twice. Um, I mean, being, being EMT has been just one of the most exhilarating, most fun, most fascinating experiences I've ever had. And, you know, again, I was really inspired by the book. But, uh, yeah, so the urban survival course is something that I have not done yet, and I'd love to hear that story because it's something I really want to do. I just haven't been able to sort of carve out the time for it.
4: Yeah, and by the way, I love. I know the most exciting thing is to learn how to deliver a baby. I delivered two. My my goat. I had a goat, and I delivered its two babies. So I haven't delivered any human babies yet. I used my birthing kit for that, um, which is pretty funny. Uh, but it's amazing. It's it's it's. But it's it's so. But my wife's about to have a child. So so maybe I'll get to use my 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 EMT skull still. Yet. So yeah. So here's the fascinating thing. So so just to, for the listeners who don't know, there's this great. Group called On Point Tactical, and they teach an urban survival course. But the thing about survivalism is, we're not really living in the wilderness anymore. Even in the wilderness, there's you know aluminum and metal and paper and and to find some pure untouched wilderness. So I thought I got to learn urban survival, and I found this guy Kevin Reed at On Point Tactical, and I would say it's the coolest class I've taken in my life. If I learned this when I was thirteen, I would have been a probably in prison, but he teaches you how to, how to, how to, how to to escape. And these are things you're going to want to know because we're living in this dangerous world now where, where business travels can be kidnapped. So he teaches you how to, how to escape from, on, on day one, he teaches you how to escape from handcuffs. And then part of the exam is he puts you in a trunk handcuffed and you have to escape from the, and escape from the handcuffs and get out of the trunk, which hopefully is a skill I'll never have to use in my life. And he teaches you how to escape from zip ties, how to center punch a, Car window and hotwire. Start start up a car. How to use jigglers. How to lo- pick locks. It's the coolest. It's the coolest set of skills you'll you'll ever ever learn in, in in three days. And the last day when they give you this kind of field exam, they maybe handcuff you together with a partner, drive you to the outskirts of town, tie you up. You got to escape from everything, and they have bounty hunters looking to the city for you, and you have to escape them. But it made me r- look at the urban landscape in a whole new way. So. My story about him, I don't know if it'll help the readers, but I'm am fascinated, you know, I, as you are, I'm fascinated like, by people and what makes them tick, especially someone who's a survivalist. And so I'm watching him all day, and, and I'm noticing, and he, this guy, he knows he knows how to escape from anything, how to deal with any disaster. He's... He, you know, lives in a fortified bunker. He's got every kind of gun and ammunition you can imagine. He's going to survive the apocalypse, <laughs> right? So, so I say, like, listen, no matter what, you want to be the last man standing, right? Whatever happens in the world, you want to live to the end of your natural life, maybe even longer, and just survive any, any disaster or apocalyptic situation or war or what have you. He, he says, absolutely, that's my goal. I want to live. And I go, how many monster energy drinks have you drinking today so far? And he goes, one. I'm like, no, you. I saw you have two. He's like, oh yeah, I also had one this morning. I didn't know we were talking about the morning. And by the way, this is at 11 a.m. And asked how many <laughs> how many sodas have you drinking? He's like two. So drinking. So I, so so I so I, I asked him. I said, there's no way I can believe you're a survivalist because we don't. And the apocalypse may not happen. The uh, you know EMP blast may not happen. The the invasion may not happen. But you, we don't know if those things are going to happen. But hundred percent certain. We're 100% certain that if you drink that many and that much, that much sugar and garbage every day, no matter what, you're, you're you're cutting your own life short. So I don't believe you're a survivalist. And he protested that he was, and eventually he said, you know what, it's not actually about survival. You're right, it's about control. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. That a lot of these, that we live in this world, and the same, same with your stuff, Ari. Like, you know, I'd be fascinated by all these sort of systems you have. To we live in this unpredictable sometimes, often dangerous, you know, but also very beautiful world. And we're just a small, small piece in the, and we're very vulnerable to a lot of things. And there are ways we create control in our lives. We become vegan, you know, in order we have some control over our diet, you, you know, can have control over time, <laughs> you know, can we master time? We can't. So let me ask you then for fun, what do you think, what, what do you think is your deep, deep motivation for the stuff that you are into as far as kind of mm-hmm. life efficiency?
5: Yeah, so it's a wonderful question, um, and and uh, I'm going an to answer it, but um, what I deal with every day with the people I work with is that people are overwhelmed, and there's two things that I find lead to overwhelm. One is a lack of control, but that's, that's an easy one to identify It's like, well, you know, your boss is putting too much work on you, or your spouse is, you know, requiring too much of your time when you get home, whatever it might be. The other part of it is unaware, uh, or lack of awareness of what's actually causing you to feel overwhelmed, which is that, you know, people get so inundated with emails and responsibilities and phone calls and just thoughts that they can't even begin to identify the root cause of what's actually creating the problem in the first place. And so in that case, and in most cases, what I actually find, and, and this relates to emergency actually in your journey, is that getting yourself out of your own way is sometimes the best medicine that anybody can simply have. And uh, a lot of times to do that, I find that you should basically learn a skill that has nothing to do with the thing that you do for a living. <laughs> so the way that I actually came up with a lot of the fundamentals for the, for the less-doing system was while I was taking a welding class before my first son was born. I had worked in construction for eight years, and I had done lots of welding, but nothing ever artistic and I decided that i missed I liked it and I missed doing it and I wanted to take a artistic welding class and I did and I ended up I made a sculpture of my son's name, except that it was the name that we thought we were going to name my son, and then we changed that name, so I had this steel sculpture. And I had welded, with nothing to do with it. Um, okay. But it, it was it was that idea of sort of getting myself out of myself, out of my own way, a totally different latitude of thinking that allowed me to figure out what I wanted to do. Now that's maybe sort of answers your question. But my my motivation is that I truly believe that there is within everybody there's that five percent that they have this unique ability and this unique gift to offer the world, and that it's being obscured. But then 95% of crap that they don't need to deal with, they don't want to deal with, and I want to do whatever I can to help basically eliminate that.
4: Do you think, and in fact, yeah, so Sophia, yeah, there's a lot to discuss in what, what you just said, but do you think that um, there was this thing about being out of control, right, and, and things get out of control, and then you're overwhelmed? 100 uh, And let me, think, let me ask you just a question. What's wrong with being out of control? <laughs>
5: So I think I don't think there's anything wrong with being out of control per se, and I think that actually it's very freeing in a lot of ways, and if it's done the right way. But again, I think it goes back to that issue, that overwhelm issue, where I see that I think people don't realize what's causing the stress, and and the reason I said that the control one is an easy one to identify is because it is for a lot of people. They could be like, oh well, I just you know I wish I had more control over my time or my budget, but that's too vague, you know, because the truth is. If you if you really dig down to it, does somebody really want to have more control over their budget? That's not really the issue. Maybe they want to have more money. Maybe they want to. Have, but do you want to actually have more control over paying bills? No, not, most people don't like paying bills. So it would be great to give up that control if somebody else could pay your bills for you, um, right. even if it's using your own money. But it's not. You know, yeah, being out of control can be a very good thing.
4: Yeah, and it's cause I, I mean, by the way, I have a lot of systems I use that really help my life. So it's not that I'm against this, but I just found the idea. I thought, I did find that the idea that, okay, if I can get all these things under control, I'm going to be okay. And it's almost exhausting having this idea that, oh, if everything's in control, I'm going to be okay. If something gets out of control, I'm not going to be okay. And I almost think a lot of the stuff, like you were saying, it's the people getting out of their own way, the problems are not the emails. The problems are not the texts. The problem is you inside and your relationship to it. So for me, for example, Example, uh, you know, I'm taught to be. You're taught to be a good person, to be kind to people, to respond to them, and then you're taught that way. And then you, it's your own it's, it's your own lack of boundaries that gets in your way more than the more than the emails by lack of boundaries that I can't put myself first before those 100 emails in the inbox.
5: Exactly, exactly. It's a, it's a very good way of putting it. Um, so, actually, but on that note, on the note of your system and stuff, I'm I'm, I'm interested to hear a little bit about your writing process because you. You dive pretty deep in the work sure. that you do,
4: yes, yeah, totally, and the new book I just finished was was- in, it was really intense <laughs> um so so i i guess i got wait I gotta wait till it comes out, but it did, but it- begin, but it begin it begins in like a yeah I, I do i I think there's no point in doing anything if you're not gonna go in all the way and 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 produce something new that no one's heard or read before
5: well it i mean. What you write, in what I imagine, is like the this sort of uh, simile to... Not simile, that's not the right word, but it, it's similar to somebody who's like a method actor. I feel like you're like a method writer.
4: Yeah, in a way, except the difference is... Maybe a method actor starts with a role and a script, and I start with my own life, and it's a great way to live. I find there's a problem in my own life, and I can dedicate all all my time and resources to solving it because then I get to write about it. So every one of my books doesn't start with a book idea. It starts with a problem in my life. The game started with me. It's just always been the guy caught in friend zone. I was like, I'm the nice guy. Like, I'm why are you dating that jerk? I'm sweet and I like you. Please like me back. What's wrong with me? So it started, you know, it started with that dating problem in my life, and emergency started with with my own fear of what was happening in the world, and realizing I needed to to uh, kind of almost what we were talking about. Like, oh, I felt like I needed to get control over it. But in the end, once I learned all these skills. I realized the problem wasn't what was happening in the world. The problem was, you know, within myself. And they were just sort of all these skills were like Prozac to give me peace of mind. That was the ultimate goal. And the new book's all about relationships and. And, 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 that was pretty, and how, horribly, how horribly sabotaging I was in my relationships, yet always blaming them on the other person. Till, so it was, that, it, was, it was that journey. So usually the book starts with a problem in my own life, and I start trying to solve it. And I realize it's taking over my entire life, but I'm getting somewhere, and I can, fortunate my job is I can solve my problem, write about it, and then hopefully it solves it for other people who may share that same problem.
5: Well, yeah, and and obviously, and again, the emergency was just unbelievably inspirational to me. And by the way, I'm getting my second citizenship, also. My wife is French, so I'm really fulfilling
4: the, the book. Um, and that, that, that's awesome that, because that, I mean that that's a great that's a great that's a great citizenship to have because it opens a lot of doors?
5: Yeah, I think pretty much with U.S. and French citizenship, I can I can pretty much go anywhere um, right. I, I want. So. I'm curious. Do you think that the skills that you learned from the game uh, research and from the writing helped, like for instance, with the urban survival?
4: Oh, oh for sure, for sure. In fact, in fact, a funny story is that when they did this, I, I used the on the last day when they did the. Um, the bounty hunting through the city, and basically if they found you in the city, they'd handcuff you, drive you five miles out of the city, you'd have to walk or hitch your ride back to carry on your mission, so I realized, and you're allowed to go get a disguise, and you bury your disguise, and so I always think in terms of, um, but to try to see things from the thousand, whatever that, that, that phrase is, what does it see from the thousand point viewpoint, vantage point, I try to look, look around a problem and see it from every different angle until I can solve it, versus the obvious. So I realized that no matter what disguise I went, they paired you up with a partner for this bounty hunt. And I realized that no matter what disguise I did, they're just going to look for two men or two people. So what I did was I went on to like so the social media at the time and grabbed a group of people. I said, I'm doing this mission. I just want to be in a group of people. And I was the only guy who maybe they've never, ever caught by, by bounty hunters in the class because they're looking for two people. So I wanted to just be with six people. So and that was the game thinking. The game thinking is understanding. The game is just understanding the laws and rules of social behavior and then having maneuverability within them once you understand them. So that was sort of game thinking. In fact, like I've trained government intelligence agencies. <laughs> the techniques in there, so there's nothing in there that hasn't been useful in almost every aspect of my life. Yeah, no, no, already, no, no, no. When, when, when's the time in your life you felt the most out of control?
5: <laughs> oh i mean that's easy i mean when i was sick with drones and, and the, yeah. the various times i went to the hospital because of it um i literally i mean one night i was pretty much like waiting to i thought i was like waiting to die wow. so that, that was uh it, it was a situation where i had uh, something was obstructing it within me and i wasn't i mean i'm not exaggerating that's what it felt like but I, in all life i wasn't really going to die I just that's what it felt like I was in so much pain and I just I felt totally weak and helpless and it, 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 actually you know what I'll tell you the, the one specific incident. it's funny that you asked me that question I, I've had so many tests done on my body and colonoscopies and all sorts of really invasive stuff but the one of the least invasive tests was one of the most upsetting for me, and it was when I got a sonogram because I had, I was developing kidney stones from one of one of the many medicines I was taking.
4: Oh,
5: and uh, a sonogram, for, for anybody who hasn't had it, is pretty basic thing. They just have a little wand that they put on you, and you know. But I remember lying on the bed or the the examination table, and I started crying because it was just so. I just felt so like broken.
4: Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Yeah, I understand that because you, you really are. You, you once once you realize you're just this machine that your life is is not it is it is, is, is not working right. It's it's ter- it's terrifying. And, and and let me ask you, in that moment, then when you thought that that it might be the end, what was your next thought?
5: That I didn't want it to, to be the end. That I wanted right. to be able to. At the time, I, I was I was not married yet, but I was with I was dating the woman who was now my wife, and I wanted to. Just, See that, and also really, I'm one of those people who wanted to be a father when I was really young. So I, yeah. I now am, but I really didn't want to miss out on that opportunity.
4: Yeah, no, we're the, we're the same. We're the same that way. I always thought that too. I just thought I would think, too, I just don't. Please don't let, don't let me die before I become a, a father. Um, you know, it's fascinating. They say that when people are die, the you know what, what they really think about in that moment of truth is is love and family, and. And because it's so easy to come I in and I, then I, you know, I really get the message you're spreading is, is it really is easy to get caught up in responding to that email or taking off the items on your to-do list or finishing that project that's due. And, and maybe if there's something we can kind of spread with this podcast we're doing now is like you just put the first things first and put the most important things first, which are, you know, the other people you love and who love you in your life.
5: Well, and one of the things that I really push with people, and, and one of the main things that I want people to get out of using a system like us doing, is that a lot of people are so overwhelmed that they don't even have the headspace to know what they want. You know, so it, it's not just a matter of saying like, "Oh, I'd love to spend more time with family." The truth is, is that some people may not want that as their number one goal, which is totally fine. But yeah, uh, if you, if you're just saying that and you're not feeling it or you're not having the opportunity to actually believe it and think about it then you're basically just living somebody else's goals.
4: Yeah, exactly. And I and I also believe that that even if we're living in a time without all this technology and all these distractions, people I believe that work expands to feel people's amount of free time. So so some people no matter, you know, Absolutely. some people no matter no matter what it is, will find a reason to maybe not connect with others and they don't realize it psychologically. I think it's sort of like it, it like work addiction is a fascinating concept, and to think like okay what what happens when what to what degree is my work keeping me disconnected from others and and safe from not putting myself at risk by loving or being loved or or what have you I'm always fascinated by people I know who are very very successful yet um Part of it's just to distract, to keep themselves safe because of a, I know I'm getting too deep for your podcast, but part of it's keeping keeping themselves too safe because love was maybe painful subconsciously as a a child and they don't want to put themselves at that kind of risk again.
5: Well, you know, that was, by the way, you know, when you asked before about being, being out of control, is that always a bad thing? Well, I think being in love is probably a pretty good example of being out of control for a good reason.
4: Exactly, exactly, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly it. That's it, That's it, That's that's exactly it. And so these are nice to have control over these things because it, because it helps me feel safe. Yep. I think you got a great point. Yeah. well, thank cool. you. cool. Okay. We, <laughs> we can we can move on just to to, to lighter stuff.
5: Yeah. <laughs>
4: um, well. So uh,
5: the the one of the questions I have for actually back to emergency also is how did you kind of decide. And this is really relevant and interesting. I think to people listening, like, how did you decide what those skill sets that you needed were, as somebody who didn't have them? You know, because you can say, like, oh, I guess I need to learn how to fight or something. But you did a lot of really specific stuff. So how did how did you kind of decide what what you needed to to feel that 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 not the control, but the peace of mind?
4: Yeah, I guess I guess one thing one one thing led to another. Like, it started off without the skills. It started off with me just thinking that maybe because maybe i need a way to to leave america in case anything ever happens when i need to get myself or if i ever have a family out of out of out of out of here safely whether there's a Biological attack, or something, or some kind of attack, or something. So it started with me just sort of getting a backup country. <laughs> you know, you got you got a backup hard drive for a computer. You got insurance in case anything goes wrong. So I thought, why well, don't I actually mean, get a backup country in case something goes wrong with my country? And then I went to that backup country, which was Saint Kitts in the Caribbean. And then I realized, oh, you know what? Like, really, the same thing's gonna happen anywhere. Uh, and then I thought, I realized, oh, you know, I need to learn these skills to make myself safe. So one thing just led to another, led to another, and. And the fascinating thing to me was so it wasn't like I kind of sat down and these are the plans and all the skills I had to learn. It's just I sort of opened myself up to the process to explore the idea of safety and feeling safe and being self-sufficient till it ended up where I was learning to survive alone in the woods for four days with nothing but my clothes and a knife on my back, and which was so alien for me having grown up in Chicago in the middle of the city you know, in an apartment building with no, no nature around whatsoever. To, to learn how to survive on my own in the wilderness with just my clothes and the knife on my back and once you do that you're like you know what I'm going to be okay if I lose everything tomorrow um, you know as long as I I'm, I'm going to be able to survive and get water shelter food fire the things I need
5: yeah and just basically be sufficient uh,
4: yeah. so what
5: what is what is a skill that you would like to learn that you haven't yet
4: uh, so a skill uh, Right now, it's really being a father. <laughs> I have a baby on the way, so I'm swaddling. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so really, I mean, and, and it's funny because my wife acts really from the heart, and I act from I, I always think and plan and, and and do those things that I talk about. And so, it's so so we've been discussing about it's a, it's, a, it's a great match. But yeah, no. So right now, the skill of being a father and being a great father who hopefully is whose children grow up knowing they have you know, love and support and esteem and all the great things that that a father should do. So that's my skill. That's the skill I'd love to learn right now. It's just great father skill. Well,
5: I, I can tell you from my somewhat limited experience, it, I, I do have three boys, but they're all under the age of three pretty much. Is said It's, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's the, the, the learning is never complete. Yeah, sure.
4: And it's fascinating. They They did a study that that supposedly of a child's needs, that even the best of parents can only attend to 50% of a child's needs. And there's a theory uh, of trauma that basically says whenever a child's need is not met, often this can sort of create a ripple effect in the development that makes us all our unique personalities. And what I was getting to earlier is, hey, why is this your passion? I think there's a deeper reason beyond the Crohn's disease uh, that, that, that this is your passion in the, in the way you were raised. And, and I know the reason I'm a writer and the reason I'm interested in the things I am is also because of the way I was raised so, so you're absolutely right being a, there's, you can never be perfect at anything because you're a human being but for sure being a parent and taking care of all a child's needs are a challenge and you do your best but I do think, I do think with great parenting the secret to world peace would really be uh, great parenting <laughs> okay let's stop talking about mothers and fathers go ahead
5: Just, I want to ask so what you feel like your deepest motivation is nowadays other than, you know, other than maybe being a good father
4: um, yeah, you know, when I interviewed Patti Smith once, the poet and singer and songwriter, and she said, my goal in life is to become the pure, clean human being I was as a child. <laughs> and so there's that idea to not be childish, but to be childlike. So, so my thought, and maybe the reason we're kind of getting on the subject because it's where my head's at lately is, is about baggage. You know, we, we, grow, I used to think that once you grew, that, that there's this kind of idea that the more that happens to you in life that whether it's growing up and hard times and this and that, you just start each thing as a piece of luggage you're carrying around. that uh, based on your experiences and the lessons you've learned from them, whether they're right or wrong. A lot of people, like you said, most people need to get out of their own way to be great. And it's, I love that you said that because literally I was on a call earlier where I was giving some advice to... To a group of people and I said that exact same thing everyone had the same problem like you just have to get out of your own way um, but it's hard to because we believe these lies about themselves Does this lie that you're not enough on your own you know this lie that being out of control is a bad thing The a lie that if we don't keep up with this or that something is going to go wrong or happen to us or we're not going to we all have these, these this collection of lies and false beliefs about ourselves and <clears throat> experiences that have uh, we start to tell ourselves a story about our life as well like oh our, my story is Bad things are going to happen to me, or great things are going to happen. Whatever it is we tell, the, and everything is more proof of this story. So we start to carry all this luggage around based on these false beliefs and based on these things that happen to us. And what I'm just trying to do is cut away all that luggage one at a time, one piece at a time, so I can just kind of be free. So, so, so again, I guess that's my motivation right now is to, is to. Um, like when you look into your child's eyes, right? Like you can just see right through to his soul, right? You can just see there's nothing in there blocking his purity. Correct?
5: Absolutely.
4: It's a beautiful thing to look into a child's eyes. It's the most magical thing. And I just, my goal is to somehow get my eyes to be that clear again.
5: That's really wonderful and eloquent. So I want to, I mean, I I would love to keep talking through this, actually, but I want to be respectful of your time. So I'm going to ask you the last question that I always ask on these interviews, which is what are your top three pieces of advice for people? To be more effective, and you can interpret that however you like.
4: Great. I'll tell you what. Since we've been very ab- abstract and esoteric, I'm going to get practical on you. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> okay. So uh, I'll, I'll just say that number one is download the program Freedom, and also maybe Intego Content Barrier. So here's here's why. Uh, do you know about the program Freedom? You must. You know all Absolutely. this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Do you, if you if you advise do you advise it all the time on your show? Um, i
5: don 't oh, actually because I, I, i'm so I think it 's a good concept, but I, I feel like there 's like a deeper route that you can get to rather than just I, I feel like that's that 's fixing the symptom rather than the cause in some cases,
4: but yeah, but as a but here's, solution
5: here's, for being productive' is great
4: because here 's my thought I hundred percent agree with you that you can you can fix this there 's a symptom and there 's the cause, right, but if you want to go to the root the root cause that's that 's a journey that might take a year. Or three years or more. But you can yeah, fix the yeah, symptom yeah. right away while you fix the cause. So my belief is, you work on the you work from the inside out and the outside in, um, and you work on both at the same time. So at least, because what I do, Dan you asked me about writing ages ago, and somehow we started talking about mom and dad. But you asked me about writing, and I believe you have to create, and I'm sure you that you have to create systems to protect you from your lower self while you work on your lower self, right? So so what I do, and what enables me to write is. I got freedom on, and I get in, in Tago again as disciplined as I'm going to be. Let's just face it: if I have to look up a fact online for a book, I'm probably going to check my email, and look at four other things. I'd love to say that I have not, but I'm going to. So, um, and so, what I, I have, a I think it's Intego content barrier, and basically, I'm only online for two hours each day, from five to six PM and eleven to midnight. That's it. My wife has the password. I don't have the password, so I can't even break the code, and so I'm only online those two hours. I knock off my emails. So I have to be very efficient. I save up whatever I want to research. I have to be very efficient, and I don't go down the rabbit hole. So, so, so that's one thing I do. Another thing I do that that's, I love that's doing
5: every every day. You only do in two hours a
4: Yep, I'm on two hours. And sometimes if I'm writing, I'll hit Freedom, and Freedom just blocks the internet for a certain amount of time. I'll hit Freedom just so it doesn't distract me. So I'm two hours max wow. online each day. Yeah, it's great. Uh, you, yeah, it's it's awesome. And it, and it's and it's and, it, and it's. I, I guess I don't have to be online for work, so so that partly helps. But really, it's unbelievable how much better my life is. And I still get everything done. If there's a real emergency, I can ask my wife to you know put in a password if I have to go deal with something. But I still don't know it. Second thing. I'm a big fan of the weekly dinner party, which is this mm. we i'm I'm really into compartmentalizing things in in my, in my life so so I'm a big fan of the weekly dinner party, which is this we all have big networks of people who we are friends with, and we all have people we want to meet and who want to meet us and If we take one night out to meet up with everybody, it just takes forever. so what I do is I have a weekly dinner party and and I'll tell you how it and basically at this dinner party i invite whoever I want to see that week maybe I've met some new people when I was single if I met any women I thought were interesting I would invite them Um, if maybe there's somebody who's in town who I like their writing or I like who they or I find them interesting and they're in town I just invite them to dinner party because I don't know maybe there's someone who wants to do business or what have you with me and I just invite them to dinner party and that way maybe it'll be you know it'll be let's say 6 to 12 people And some will be work, some will be personal, some will be friends. I don't make the same crew every time. I usually say if you come to one, you probably won't go to another for three months. Some I know, some I don't know, some are new. And what's great is everyone has a nice time, it's very fun. And I'll tell you how it works, by the way. I used to do it at my home, and I found that cooking or preparing was just a lot of work and time. Then I used to do it at a great restaurant, but I also found everyone's at different economic levels or the bill comes and you divide it up 12 ways and it gets kind of weird. And, or you just pay for everyone, but then it becomes a very expensive proposition. And so I found a restaurant here where I, in advance I order the meal in advance for everybody um, and they just buy the checkup. By each person a certain amount. It's not that much for each person. They give each person an individual check. I know it sounds weird to talk about that, but you got to think the city can do it every week. It might end up being costly or, or, or time time consuming. So that's kind of how it works. We all read at the restaurant. Everyone gets a it's a very low price. It's an awesome food. Um, and afterward, if there are a few people I want to connect with more, we just come back to my we come back to my house and hang out. And there's kind of fun activities so so the weekly dinner party is just great and it's super efficient um, and if you find somebody who you wanted to meet and they turn out to be awesome you can schedule one-on-one time with them later if they weren't that awesome then you got to meet them and now you know that they may not be someone you want in your circle
5: that's that's an awesome suggestion okay and what's number
4: three uh, <laughs> number three and again I'm just going to keep it super 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 practical um is, oh wow, Scott, there's so many little things I do. You know what? I think the other thing is, is that, because, <laughs> again, I'm going to keep these really practical because our other stuff is so abstract, is this? Uh, we only have a certain amount of decision-making power in the day. There's that book, Willpower, and everyone talks about we only have a certain amount of capacity yeah, for decisions. And so I try to, and sometimes you talk about all this stuff, anyway, but I try to automate, I try to automate unnecessary predictable decisions. Yeah, for example, I like that. I remember, I remember when I used to work at I used to work at the Village Voice. That was my first first uh, kind of job in New York. And when lunchtime came around, they pass around the menu, and everyone look at the menu and circle what they want to order. And it was a big production, a big to do. And even now, it's like, what am I going to do for lunch? So what I decided to do is just say these are my seven favorite restaurants. <laughs> um, these are my seven favorite dishes. To so this, just bring this one on Monday, this one on Tuesday, this one on Wednesday at 1 p.m. each day, and that way the meal just comes. I don't have to decide. Well, what am I going to eat? I don't know what I want to do they have this what do I want to do? let's look through all the menus or, or whatever so, so I automated those decisions sometimes I for a while with clothing when I was kind of going, going out each day or when I'm doing kind of media stuff I'll just lay out this is a Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday outfit so any of those decisions that take a lot of time um, and it's hard to see them unless you start looking for them I'll try, to, I'll try to automate them so it's just automating unnecessary thinking so you can keep your problem solving ability for as you said earlier our, your unique ability
5: that's really great. I mean, those, those three are very practical, and I, I think those are those are really widely applicable. The automation thing, obviously, fits very very well with with uh, everything I teach. And can, can, I, can, can I, I,
4: I? Oh, great, great.
5: Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, so there, there's a quote that I just came across actually recently, um, but I, I just want to share with you based on that. And it was um, it's a loud two quote actually, and it's very simple. It said, "Anticipate the difficult by managing the easy."
4: Yep, yep, that's great. I love I love that. I love that. But but I would add a corollary to that. Don't 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 um don't spend your time managing it the easy to distract yourself from having to do the difficult and important. Because I think people will do will will uh you know, I'm gonna just get these things out of the way before I do what's important and do the do the important first. Manage Manage the easy so you can do the, do the important first. That would be my. That would be how I improve Lao Tzu's work. <laughs> I don't wanna, it's so <laughs> arrogant to even say that his quote is perfect. Can I give you two other quick little small things as long as we're talking and maybe it's fun? Please. See, I want to see if you know them. Okay, one is NNTR. Do you know what that means?
5: NNTR, no.
4: It's the greatest thing, which is, and this is going to reduce email clutter right away, NNTR means no need to respond. So everyone I deal with, if I just send them an email, I'll just put, you know, I don't need a response, I put NNTR at the bottom, so it's not like you have to say, oh, I got it. Oh, I'm glad you got it. Great that you got it. We'll talk later. Good. Just, uh, you know, I send out an email, NNTR at the bottom if I don't need a response. You know, they got it. The system works. So using NNTR... Training everyone to to do that. That way, they don't have to respond back if you don't need a response. Just N N T R. Second thing, and we should have done it on this podcast call. Is uh, do you know? I, I, I tell me if you know this this one. I, I love this. I love this stuff because it's fun. Um, is uh, is how to do real hard outs that are really powerful outs. Like, for example, if you're going to a work meeting or you're doing this this podcast call and we're like, you said at the beginning, we'll do half an hour, right? It's probably, it's now it's 50 minutes because we kept talking. But if I really wanted to get off instead of saying we'll do half an hour and not even saying we'll stop at 7.30, if I said, hey, I have to stop at 7.35, So telling someone you have to stop on a time that's not, say, a 15-minute increment or especially not a half-hour increment makes it really, really believable. If someone says they have to be out at 935, they're really specific for a reason. So if you have a – first of all, a soft out is let's try and make this in half an hour. A hard out is I have to be done at this time. And then let's just say a – super hard out is to give a really an odd time so that really be your schedule that regimented so if there's something where you really want to make sure you make it an escape or make an escape give them that, that odd time like I got to be at 9.22 I have to leave <laughs> 9.20 actually makes more sense 9.22 makes you sound like you're a little OCD I'll usually lose I'll usually use that cool that's, that's hilarious next time I walk into a meeting I'm going to be like hey really quick anybody know what time it is in
5: Gibraltar right now okay good because <laughs> I got to leave in exactly 17 minutes to am gonna call <laughs>
4: exactly and it's going to be a 17-minute meeting, and you're going to get everything done. <laughs> exactly.
5: Well, it's actually, I, I almost get offended when people try to book a 45-minute meeting with me now because you can do pretty much most of that stuff in 15 minutes. So those are those are awesome, Neil. So thank you. Thank you so, so much. Where, where is the best place? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to link to everything you've ever written that I can find, but where is the best place for people to find out more about you and what you're working on? I
4: guess just... Just my website neilstrauss.com, and I, I know it sounds dumb to say, but I have a mailing list, and I love sending out meaningful stuff on it. So that's, and I'm, yeah. So, so I guess please be part of that. I enjoy doing it. It's funny because you know, in in the old days, you'd write for the New York Times, and I probably reach as many people with my mailing list now as I did writing for the New York Times. It's such a, it's so fascinating how the world's changed.
5: Yeah, right. That's right. It's all about building email lists now. But, there's, you know, if you're sending out legitimately good stuff, then then more power to you as far as I'm concerned. So, well, Neil, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And, um, I can't wait to read the next book.
4: Great. And let, let's have a – come next time we're in LA, come, come to one of my weekly dinner parties, and we'll celebrate your second citizenship.
5: <laughs> Wonderful. Uh-huh. All right. Uh-huh. Okay.
1: Hey, it's Ari again. Thanks for listening to today's show.